Welcome back to the Going Coastal podcast, the podcast of the Students and New Professionals chapter of the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association, hosted by the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I am one of your co-hosts, Marissa Torres. And I'm one of your other co-hosts, John Miller. And on this episode, we have Nicole Zuck with us, a PhD candidate at Stevens Institute of Technology. Welcome, Nicole. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. So, a um, little awkward, but you're actually John's, one of John's students currently right now, aren't you? Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll try to keep it light. This isn't your dissertation. This isn't your comp. Like, just talk how, however your perspective or how you feel about your subject. Don't worry about it. There's no test afterwards. <laughs> right, John? Exactly. Feel bad. Feel free to say bad things about your advisor, all that stuff. I don't have anything terrible to say about my advisor. Don't worry. That's yet. So far. (laughs) Yet. Yeah. So uh, how many years have you actually been a John student uh, in this PhD program? Oh, with the last year, I can't even keep track of time anymore. I believe this is my third year. Um, I finished two. I've completed my classes. I am up to that fun part where I am now starting to actually really focus on my own research. So how is that going for you? It's starting to really pick up. Um, It's a little slow for a while of classes. I had some catching up to do coming from a very different background, moving into more of an engineering type of mindset. Um, But I love what I'm doing. It's going well. I'm currently processing about a year's worth of beach data. And we're starting to put together some of those results and good things are coming out of it. So where, so you mentioned that now you're doing more um, engineering side. What were you doing beforehand? Uh, Before coming to Stevens, my background was in geology and in oceanography with a focus on geologic oceanography. Um, So much more earth science focused. And it does have its direct applications towards the engineering side of things. But there's a little bit of a learning curve there to pick up on everything that you don't learn as a geologist. Sure. So what made you want to uh, go into coastal engineering uh, as opposed to continuing to pursue more earth science-y degrees? That's a really good question. And honestly, I was looking into more geology-specific or coastal oceanography-specific programs And when I was really thinking about what I wanted to study and how I wanted that research to be used, I realized uh, that I actually needed to go into engineering, that the type of work we're doing at Stevens is in line with what I really wanted to be doing. And it didn't apply directly to geology or oceanography itself. Uh, So it was a little bit of a roundabout way of getting there. Uh, But I'm happy to finally find out that engineering is where I needed to be. So Nikki, what, what was one of the, I guess, the, some of the bigger challenges that, you know, moving into an engineering uh, program from the, the more science side? I think some of the bigger challenges um, right off the bat were the level of math that I was previously requ- uh, required to take is not quite the engineering level of math that everyone else has had. Uh, So I had to do some work on my own to brush up on some things that I haven't really used in a while and to actually learn some of it on my own. And I think the other biggest hurdle was learning 
uh, MATLAB encoding. Um, I know I'm still working on it, but that's something that I didn't really have to use previously. Uh, so there was a lot of effort put in on that um, from the very beginning. And I will admit I am still learning, but compared to where I was two years ago, uh, it's almost two different people. I think we're all still learning MATLAB. <laughs> that's fair. Did you end up taking a break between undergrad and graduate studies? And if so, what um, what were you doing? What prompted you to either leave academia and come back or just coming back in general? I had no gap between my undergrad degree and my master's. I went straight into it. And then after finishing my master's program, I worked for a couple of years, uh, mostly in environmental consulting, but I did a whole range of things uh, while under that consulting umbrella. Uh, mostly realized that it wasn't quite for me, uh, wasn't really the study I wanted to be doing that was in my mind from going back to when I started my master's. So taking a breath to think. Um, <laughs> so going back to that, working a few years, I think it was almost more important that I learned what I didn't want to be doing as opposed to learning exactly where I wanted to be. Um, so a lot of learning took place, a lot of seeing what else was out there. And after actually being out in that quote unquote real world and meeting people, seeing things, I was really comfortable knowing that it was time to come back to school for the PhD. I was fully ready um, I had the ex necessary experiences to have the confidence in myself that I'm now on the right track and that this is the direction I want to be going in. I also think it's important for some younger listeners to realize that you don't have to have a definite, precise end goal. If you're that closed off, you might miss some great opportunities. Snaps for that. You go, girl. I think that fits you know, right in with some of the, some of what we've heard in some of our previous episodes. And I think, you know, one of the things it, you know, just that having that benefit of, um, you know, having been out, um, having those experiences and then coming back, I think sometimes, you know, it may be viewed as an impediment. Like you, you've, you've started down a path that you can't stop and change and switch. And, you know, certainly I think, uh, you know, you're an example and we have some other students that, you know, and it took a similar path. And I think it's, it's really cool that you understood, you know, more about yourself, about what you wanted to do, and then, you know, made that made that switch. And it's 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 never too late. So it's, it may not be the typical career path, but for anybody that's out there thinking about, uh, you know, going back to grad school, it's never it, it's never too late. Um, and the, and the benefits of the experiences that you bring, um, you know, can be a real advantage um, when you do come back. And to add to that, I know that there's a little bit of a stigma that if you're applying for school or trying to do something after this age or this age, none of that matters. Uh, there is no wrong age to go back and do any of this. Here, here. I love all of that. Um, our, like John said, just our listeners, definitely that's something that um, everybody needs to hear sometimes, you know, it's uh, other people going through similar experiences. Um, and I really love this platform to help other persons who may or may not be considering this field uh, or this career path to, to venture down. So thank you so much for sharing. Um, I did just want to figure out, so where are you from originally? So if you're, um, where 
where are you from originally? Where'd you go to undergrad? Where'd you go for your master's? And now you're back, you're, you're in New Jersey. How was that um, location uh, transfer for you? All right. So the whole history, got it. <laughs> um, I am a Jersey girl to start off. Um, I the, Actually, the neighborhood I grew up in, I was able to bike to the beach. Uh, we also had several acres of woods behind us. So I was outdoorsy from the get-go, um, either climbing trees, picking up rocks, biking to the beach, even though I wasn't actually allowed to. <laughs> It was about an eight-mile bike ride. Um, we did it anyway. Uh, so I just always grew up on the coast and very interested in the world around me and how it worked and how those pieces fit together. And if I had this forest behind me and this beach on the other side, how could that coexist? What was happening to allow these things to be together? Um I joke around saying I was probably the most nerdy little kid there was, but I was so extremely curious, and that's really what pushed me into sciences. Uh, so if we go back even further, I ended up going to a high school in New Jersey called MAST that is specialized in marine sciences. It's considered uh, one of the state's career academies. Absolutely loved it. And from there, I went to Stockton in South Jersey, uh, where I was a double major. I studied geology and I studied marine science with a concentration in oceanography. Uh, the geology program there was incredible. I did all sorts of travel. We were able to go every spring on these incredible camping, backpacking trips all over the Midwest and far west of the United States. Uh, with that, I got to go on an academic trip to China to study geology for about a month, actually. It was awesome. Uh, so all those experiences were totally enriching. They really helped understand the material and get that bigger global picture of how the pieces fit together. And from there, I knew that I wanted to go to grad school pretty much immediately and was bouncing around some other schools in my head most of them were more coastal. And my undergraduate advisor at the time actually suggested that I look into Texas A&M, that they had a really good oceanography program, and that a lot of what I was interested in uh, being more coastal, there were some studies coming out of there that were relevant to what I was interested in. I never once thought about Texas A&M until this moment. They're in the middle of Texas. Why what I think oceanography would be there. Um, to my surprise, a lot of great research was happening. Uh, I applied, got a phone call from my actual master's advisors who retired about a month ago, uh, that they wanted me to, that they were going to fly me down. I was going to get to meet everyone and everything took off from there. Um, I had other offers to other schools and Texas A&M won my heart and I did my oceanography master's there. After completing that, I looked for some work around Texas. Texas wasn't quite the right fit for me um, where I'd want to live long term, especially since all my family is on the East Coast. Uh, so I inevitably ended up moving back to Jersey. And that's how I landed that first big job working in consulting where I was for a couple of years before coming to Stevens. Nice. I like that trajectory. Love having 
thankfully, because we love being near the ocean, all of our opportunities will likely also be near the ocean. So that's uh, definitely a perk of this um, field, for sure. Also really appreciate East Coasters, New England girl born and raised, and I totally agree that maybe going out west is a fun experience, but might not be for full time. It's a good thing Heather's not here on this on this episode. She might have she might beg she might beg to differ being from Texas and being on the West Coast. This is true. I am biased. <laughs> we'll bring the East Coast bias to the show. That's okay. Uh, so I wanted to move forward and really dive into your research topic, Nikki. So what exactly or what are you thinking will likely be your research topic? What are you focusing on? What do you expect to write about in the next coming, coming years? I was fortunate in my timing of coming to Stevens in that it coincided with when a major beach nourishment project was occurring very locally um, to where I live in an area of New Jersey. So we're doing a big study on that area anyway, but it coincides with what I can write my dissertation on. And specifically, I plan to look at how the sandbars are reforming after nourishment, how they're moving around again, uh, what their morphology is, and especially as that nourishment material starts to erode away as it transports, how does that interaction then change as the groin field starts to reemerge? The section of Jersey that I live in and that we're studying is one of the most heavily modified sections of coastline you're going to find anywhere. It's been modified going back to, I believe, the earlier 1900s. Uh, when people first decided we want to keep our beaches a little bit bigger. So there's a long history there and not a lot of studies specifically on how those sandbars are actually responding. So I'd like to fill in some of those research gaps moving forward. So are you focusing, are you doing some like numerical modeling of sediment transport and sediment morphology uh, of this coastline? Or is this more field studies like taking transects every so often and monitoring it that way? Or both? Uh, This time, it's entirely field-based. We are out there just about every month doing a survey over what is about a four-mile stretch of beach. We have a drone that flies and takes very detailed measurements of the dry part of the beach. I throw on a backpack, uh, so does John actually, and we'll be trudging in and out of the water in the swash zone uh, to get those measurements that we can't get from the drone. And then we have a jet ski equipped with bathymetry equipment that takes soundings as far landward as it can reach all the way out to the depth of closure, which in this area is about 30, 35 feet of water. So we put all those pieces together. Um, We make some pretty detailed models uh, to look at it and to look at those changes. But at this point, we're not actually modeling an X-Beach or anything like that. That could come later, but for now, it's assessing the actual data that we're collecting and seeing what trends we can pull out and what behaviors we're seeing in the sandbars and how we're seeing that sediment transport, whether it's cross shore in storage summer to winter 
and how it's actually diffusing longshore over time after that nourishment took place. Nikki didn't mention it, but one of the questions on our graduate student application is how cold of the how 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 cold can the water be before you decide that you're not going to go in? And depending on that answer, we screen out the the less resilient uh, candidates. So Nikki Nikki won because she's willing to put on that backpack and and get out there in 45 degree water temps. I do need a better wetsuit. I will admit that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it does get pretty chilly, but it's all made up for when we're surveying in the summer and it's gorgeous out. It's a great question just to screen people out. Oh my gosh. Um, so I'm wondering as a personally, Nikki, for your background, I am a numerical modeling person and I am not necessarily a field person. I definitely don't mind going out in the field um, when the opportunity arises, but I don't traditionally have much experience collecting data, going out and doing stuff. So I'm wondering if you could help me paint a picture. And it's like, what is your typical survey day uh, look like? What kind of measurements are you taking? Um, and uh, what are the metrics that you're specifically tracking um, uh, that you're trying to monitor for this area? There's what we would like to be a typical survey day. However, once you get out into the field, nothing is ever typical. No day is ever the same as any other survey day. Uh, whether it's the actual weather or equipment might want to misbehave, or on the other hand, you might have a day where everything goes so incredibly smoothly, you're almost afraid of it. Um, but typically, when we're going out, we start very early in the morning. And depending on what time the tide is, we know if we're starting with the bathymetry first or if we're starting with the walking and flying of the drone first. Uh, so typically what we would do is if low tide is first thing in the morning, uh, we'll show up, we'll go over a briefing of who exactly is doing which piece of the surveying, go over a little bit of safety, whether waves are concerned that day, who is being a buddy with who, and just make sure everyone knows what's going to happen. And then, so when it's low tide, I'll get my wetsuit on and I'll get right into the water to start walking. So what we're actually measuring when we do this is GPS coordinates for elevation. And we use that data to come up with, um, well, we put it together with all the other pieces and we come up with a digital elevation model that shows the entire area of the beach. And in that, we can see the different elevations all the way from uh, the boardwalk that exists in this specific study region, all the way out to the end of where the jet ski goes. And by taking those elevations, we can compare one survey to another. And in that comparison, when we see those changes in elevations, we can determine a material volume that was either added, subtracted. Uh, we could see if it moved on or offshore or alongshore. So when we really put all of our pieces together, that's what we do. As far as everything else that's going on, it really is just a lot of moving pieces 
and being able to trust everyone you're with to keep you safe, to keep each other safe, and to make sure everything runs as smoothly as possible. It sounds like a full day. Uh, You guys are out there. How many people are generally out there collecting with you at any given time? For this particular survey, at bare minimum, we have four. Very nice. A mixture of graduate and undergrad or mostly just grad students and John? It depends on who's available. Uh, John is almost always out there. We have a research engineer who works with us who's always out there. We have our Captain Howie who's always driving the trailer with the jet ski. And he's also a little bit of a MacGyver in the field. If something isn't working right or if you need something fabricated out of nowhere, he's your guy. Everyone needs a MacGyver. That's for sure. And, and, and I just just to add to that, you know, um, you know, some of my favorite times are, are when we actually in the summertime get a chance to get out in the field with more of the undergrads. Um, so there's a couple different programs that Stevens has or we undergrads that get to do research with us. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the parts that I enjoy about that is actually having the undergrads get to work with some of our graduate students like Nikki so that Nikki can sort of serve as a, a mentorship uh, role to those undergrads. Because ultimately, when you finish with your PhD, that's what you're going to be. You're going to be a mentor, whether it's in a professional environment or um, in an academic environment. Uh, I guess that's professional too. But um, but anyway, so it, it, it's fun to see you know the more experienced graduate students like Nikki get to interact with those undergrads. And it really is enjoyable being able to interact with them especially when you find one who's genuinely interested and you can actually like watch them light up when something clicks or when they learn something new and they get really, really excited about the subject matter. From this perspective of maybe someone who is in coastal, but not necessarily this type of coastal or this flavor of coastal, um, you're monitoring beach morphology, sandbar movement, how groin fields are developing over time. So I'm wondering um, why in in your, uh, I guess, in your opinion, from your perspective, why is this important to monitor? And why should people care about monitoring this, um, not only in New Jersey, but along the entire coastline? From one side, it's incredibly important just in that a lot of tax dollars are going towards these. So people want to know, is it worth it? Uh, What's my money actually being spent on? How effective is it? So this seeks to answer some of those questions and to show that this is helping. Um, This is especially important aside from the tax dollars in that sea level rise is real. It's happening whether or not we want to, even though there are people out there who put their blinders on and pretend it doesn't exist. So between that and the increasing frequency of storms and just knowing that storm surge comes with it, these projects really help not to just protect that first line of businesses or homes, but by protecting those, it also protects everything else behind it. So whole communities are benefiting even if they don't really see it. And especially in New Jersey, when we nourish a beach, that adds to revenue for the state and towards all of these beach towns. When the beaches erode and they're these itty bitty little spits of sand, there's not a whole lot of people who can go out and enjoy the beach. 
after a nourishment, you can increase all sorts of tourism to a town where it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, definitely. Um, you get some crowds, you get some locals who aren't thrilled to have all these people coming in. But at the same time, a lot of towns along the shorelines, whether it's New Jersey or anywhere else, they do rely on money coming in from people coming to visit and enjoy those beaches. Nikki, you also get a chance to to help us out with some of the other students' uh, research on living shorelines and um, some different uh, pristine environments on marshes and things like that. So, can you talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, some of the some of the the work that you've done and, and that we've done in in some of the marshes? Of course. So, as John said, we do focus on some areas other than just beaches. Uh, which are these wonderful, squishy marsh areas. And a lot of people don't really think a marsh is that important, but they do a lot, especially when storms come in. Uh, They protect communities in back bay type areas. They do a lot for water quality. And unfortunately, many of our marshes are eroding very, very quickly. So a lot of the work we do and that some other students at Stevens are focused on is looking at ways to best curb this erosion. And a lot of that falls under what we call living shorelines, which is using nature-based solutions to both benefit the marsh and whatever community is interested in protecting that marsh. So we do our best to avoid using those giant concrete structures or what have you, and looking at resilient areas that are naturally occurring, seeing what's working there and finding ways to apply something similar to our shorelines that are eroding. Given the choice, would you prefer the squishy marshes or the beaches? I prefer the beaches. That's not to say that I dislike the living shorelines or marsh studies, but my preferred area is definitely the beaches. So I'll just jump in and, and ask a question that kind of relates to uh, the comparison between your 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 work life balance as a uh, consulting engineer or versus or a consulting scientist, environmental scientist versus uh, the work life balance as a PhD student. That's a really good question. As a consultant or really anyone working in industry, there's this enormous benefit in that when you leave work, you're done with work. That's not to say you won't be stuck doing some ridiculous number of overtime hours somewhere, but you can stop thinking about work as soon as you get home. As a grad student, there's much more flexibility in the schedule. You can have a much better balance in terms of being able to get other life things accomplished while going to school, taking classes and what have you. But there's never really that off switch that you get in industry. Um, So I can come home from Stevens and then either it's homework or it's reading papers. It never really turns off. So that's probably the biggest difference I could really see. However, I am, like I said earlier, I am a little bit of a nerd. I really do enjoy being in school. So I actually prefer this academic balance compared to that consulting one. I also know it's not for everyone, but that's just me. Yeah. Having that ability, I think, to 
So it's a, it's a, it's a mixed, it's sort of a mixed blessing there, right? So it's, uh, you know, you, you do have that flexibility built in, but then just, just always sort of having that next, and having that next thing to learn about, right? That, that, that's, that's always out there. Um, I think that's one of the biggest, biggest challenges, um, of certainly being a, a graduate student, but especially a PhD student understanding, you know, wh- when, when is enough enough? Like at, at what point do you, uh, do you reach the, uh, sort of saturation point in terms of, uh, having, you know, a significant, a sufficient amount of material, a significant contribution and being able to say, Hey, I've done a lot of work and now my, my research is done. I have to cut it off somewhere, which is always, which is always a challenge because for the most part, if you go back to be a PhD student, the curiosity is what, what brought you back. So you, you never stop being curious. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, curiosity really does drive me. I know it drives most of us, but it's also in that a lot of us tend to be a little bit of a perfectionist. So it is really difficult to decide this is complete instead of wanting to continuously add to it. At this point in my PhD journey, I haven't written a dissertation yet. So I haven't fully gotten into that I need to keep writing. I need to keep polishing. I am still doing a lot of that background research. So it's a little bit easier for me at this point to still be able to say, we're going to turn off for the night or we're going to unplug for the weekend. But even from my own experience, just when it came time, crunch time to finish that master's thesis, I remember how it was. And it was nonstop for, I want to say weeks, but I think it was probably closer to two months of just push and get it done. But again, this is what we signed up for and we're here for it. And I am very excited to see where it goes. So Nikki, what do you think you like or love most about being a PhD student or what you love most about your research topic? Uh, What do I love most about being a PhD student? Uh, This goes straight back into curiosity. And even if I have a question that's not even necessarily related to my research topic, we I have access to this whole library that I wouldn't have access to otherwise. So even other topics that aren't related, I can look up whatever I want. And it's really helped me even in just some silly argument arguments with other academics from other areas to prove a point. Um, I know it seems a little silly, but that's a really big bonus, just having access to all of this other information. Uh, Specifically about my project, I do love the fieldwork aspect about it. That might actually be my favorite part. Any chance I get to be outside, even if it's February and 20 degrees and the water's only 40, I still love being out there. Uh, So falling into this project and just being able to go out and actually collect my own data is huge for me. I don't think I would enjoy this project nearly as much if someone else was just handing me the information. I think we always say a, a, a bad day in the field is always better than a good day in the office. So what do you like least about being a student or your research project? Ooh, that one's a doozy. What do I like least? Let's see. Initially, coming back to school, I think what I liked least 
was that transition of having to learn how to be a student again. It really is a skill that I think most people forget about after they graduate and start working for a while. And that transition back was a little bit rough. And on a more joking note, I do miss having a grown-up size paycheck. (laughs) Snaps for that. (laughs) So you are three years into your PhD. You're doing a bunch of field work. Now, what are the next steps for you? What does your outlook look like uh, in terms of maybe finishing, writing? Um, Do you see yourself writing a few journal articles? Or uh, when do you see yourself finishing if, you know, the stars aligned and everything goes according to plan? I'll start with the writing portion. Um, I'm doing a lot of that background research now. We have a little over a full year of data that I am working through. So as we get a better picture of that and see what the data is really telling us, Uh, We do have a few ideas for a journal article or two lined up. Uh, But again, that has to, we have to see what the data tells us first. As far as when I'm going to finish, I would rather not put a guess on that. I'm going to be a little superstitious on this one and don't want to jinx myself if I say something too early. That's fair. Just for my curiosity, uh, jumping back quickly into the data portion that you mentioned. You're collecting all this data and you have to process it. What exactly are you doing to the data to get it to a point where it's quote unquote usable? Uh, It depends on which chunk of data we're looking at. Uh, When it's coming from the drones, that drone imagery, we use a couple different programs to put all the pictures together. Uh, We pick out where all of our ground control points were And we run it through a program that makes its own version of a digital elevation model or DEM. We use some of that in concert with a GIS program to clip that file into the little usable part of the beach. Uh, The original ortho mosaic is beautiful. It shows everything, but it can really only measure that dry sand. It's not great at measuring anything in the water. So we have to clip that and then we combine that with all of our bathymetry data that needs to get cleaned up. Um, So that's in a different program then. And the bathymetry portion, as far as cleaning it up, that more has to do with sometimes the sounder will pick up bubbles or a little bit of turbidity. And from that, it might identify a false bottom. Uh, So it's going through the data, making sure that the bottom that's identified is actually the real one making small corrections in that is necessary. But for the most part, we're not trying to change what it's showing us. We're just making sure it's accurate. And the walker part, uh, the part when we're wearing the backpacks, that actually takes the least amount of processing. That data is usually pretty clean. It's more a matter of making sure um, everything lines up. And then in a combination of either a program called HiPack or MATLAB, we combine the pieces so that instead of having three separate little things, they all get woven together in this nice mesh. We get an idea of what the entire overall beach looks like. And from there, we can continue on and look at those sand volumes and how it's changing and what have you. Overall, this processing, it takes time. Uh, We're not necessarily trying to make major changes to it. It's 
just a time consuming process of putting the pieces together. Sure. Yeah, that sounds um, honestly miserable, but a good learning experience and data processing. Yes, especially when you have a couple million data points. <laughs> um, so with all of that data, do you guys work with or share this type of data with maybe local entities or local agencies um, to kind of just, I guess, share the wealth of knowledge about this beach and and what's going on with it for use in other projects or, or what have you? That might actually be a little bit more of a John question. At this point, um, I'm not too involved with the actual reporting back to the state or to the townships. Uh, some of these projects, we are writing reports for those entities. Um, but for this one specific, I'm not sure how we're moving forward with that aside from producing a monitoring report. What say you, John? <laughs> so the answer is yes, we we do share it. The this, this specific project is, and Nikki's PhD work is sponsored by the state of New Jersey. So the, the New Jersey DEP um, asks us to go out and collect this information and uh, New Jersey has this great program called the Coastal Protection Technical Assistance Service, uh, the intent of which is to help the state understand how to do things better in terms of coastal protection. So all of the information goes back to hopefully help uh, the state and the Corps of Engineers design better beach nourishment projects, um, not just for New Jersey, but uh, for the rest of the country as well. So uh, trying to learn from what has been done in the past. Sure. So could like anybody, is it publicly available or would it be publicly available to some extent, like shared with other universities? I'm just saying from like a, from any other coastal engineering student, professor, group, university that may or may not want to use or leverage this data to compare with theirs or to do their own little study using the data, um, if it would be, if it's publicly available or not? That is a great question. And it, it's it's in the direction of a path that we've been thinking about a lot more recently. Um, you know, all of, our, all of our data and all of the reports generally, uh, again, they're sponsored by the state, so they are publicly available. But typically, uh, you've had to know that they exist or reach out to us specifically, and then we would provide the information. So we are definitely exploring different alternatives in terms of making uh, the data accessible. Um, um, there's a lot of different uh, uh, newer platforms for sharing data that we're beginning to explore and to think about, because quite honestly, um, you know, our philosophy on data is that, you know, you, you, you extract what you can out of it, but there's always so much more that somebody else might be able to find or to use it for. So, uh, it's, it's in, in a sense, it's selfish if you keep it all to yourself. So we are definitely all about trying to find better platforms and better ways to share our data. Awesome. Good to know for anybody out there interested in the New Jersey coastline at some point. Anywho, back to Nikki. Um, so... Life is going great right now, and we're not going to put a date on you finishing. And I know you already just came from consulting, but where do you maybe sort of see yourself going into post-PhD? After graduating, I think at this point I'm leaning towards going government. I'm not sure which branch. Um, there's a lot of possibilities there. 
Again, I am not one that likes determining I want to do this. I'm much more open to opportunities as they arise. Uh, But I do think I would prefer a working government somehow for a couple different reasons. At the federal or local level, you think? That depends more on what's available around when I graduate. All right. So I'm going to ask Nikki this question. I ask all of my guests or all of our guests on this show, and that is, what advice would you give to a student or to someone who might be interested in pursuing the same field of research or a similar position as yourself? That is a really good question. See, I was actually asked something very similar um, about what advice I would want to give to the high school version of myself not too long ago. And the advice I would give would be go for it. Uh, Read everything you can. Start learning some programming a little bit early. But most importantly, stay curious. If you love the outdoors, if you love the beach, if you know that's what you want to study, don't let silly things get in your way. Use that determination. You know you have some grit in you. You will find a way to find that right program. If money is an issue, there's scholarships available. Don't let the world tell you no. Uh, whatever it is you want to study, especially if it's in this field, uh, make sure you know how to swim and buy a good wetsuit. <laughs> that's that's some great advice, Nikki. That's uh, that's awesome. Um, I do have one final question that I would like to ask as. This is the podcast of the Student and New Professionals group of the uh, American Shoreline, American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. And as somebody who just attended one of their conferences, um, the big question is, are you team geology or team engineering? Oh, you know, I'm always a geologist. Come on now. (laughs) (sighs) Ah, That's it. (laughs) I know you want me to be team engineering, but come on, the geologists have shiny rocks. What do you want me to do? (laughs) Killing me. You're killing me. If it helps uh, when people are asking me what I'm studying, especially if I can tell they're not really interested, uh, I'll occasionally describe it as the wet rocks, (laughs) which is more being silly. Um, But overall... Geology is related to almost anything else you want to study. And even studying the engineering side of beaches and understanding more the physics and everything behind how the sand is moving, how we're implementing things, determining how effective is it, a lot of it does come back to having that earth science knowledge and having more of an intuitive sense of what's going to happen or how will this change affect the whole. And a lot of that really does come from that geology background and also just from growing up on the coastline and being able to see it firsthand. And that's experience that no matter how much you really learn in engineering, until you see it, it's almost like there's something missing. And I feel like I do bring a little bit of something else, the engineering side of things, because I started as a geologist. 
No, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's great. We're, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're, we're, we're not, uh, uh, we're, we're very accepting us, us engineers. So I think, I think it's important. I think the perspective that geologists bring and physical oceanographers and, um, environmental engineers, I think that's all, uh, really important. And that certainly can help contribute to the, I guess, the richness of the knowledge in the, in the field of coastal engineering. So, um, I think it's great that you bring that, that, that coastal geology background into uh, the perspective into your to your research, and I think that's just going to lead to better things and a better dissertation, and uh, you know, great things for you. Thank you, and I do agree. Aside just from geology or anything else, but the more backgrounds you have, looking at a particular problem the more holistic of a solution you're going to get. And more often than not, you'll have a solution that benefits more people or more ecosystems. And if you only looked at one little side of it alone. True story. That's the biggest benefit and the most important characteristic of the whole being open-minded and having multidisciplinary teams. This is why we need multidisciplinary teams to have all of that expertise at one table, solving a single problem, considering it from all different angles, from all different fields. So we really appreciate that. I love that you have a different background and you went into engineering and you're able to provide that perspective because as engineers, we need outside perspective. We get a little tunnel vision sometimes. So never be afraid to just speak up and tell them that they're wrong or maybe they just didn't look at it this way. And to add to that, uh, coming from this other background, I want to highlight that, yes, it's a very different background. If you want to get into engineering, don't be afraid of it. You might have a little more footwork to do in the beginning, but you'll learn it. You'll be fine and everything's going to work out. Um, Don't be afraid if you have a different background. Perfect words of wisdom. Thank you so much, Nikki, for joining us today. Uh, best of luck throughout your whole, the rest of your uh, PhD experience and beyond. Hopefully we'll talk again, maybe at some point uh, in the future. I do work for the federal government, so you can uh, talk to me whenever about my experience too. Awesome. Thank you so much. So thank you all for tuning in this month. This was our second installment of our student research spotlight series on Going Coastal. If you or someone you know is interested uh, in participating and sharing their research with a larger audience who's doing some awesome things that are coastal related, send us an email at asbpa.snp at gmail.com with the subject SNP podcast student research. You'll find that email in the description below as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone.